Welcome to Financial Modelers Corner, where we discuss the art and science of financial modeling with your host, Paul Barnhurst. Financial Modelers Corner is sponsored by Financial Modeling Institute. Welcome to Financial Modelers Corner. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst. This is a brand new podcast where we will talk all about the art and science of financial modeling which distinguish financial modelers from around the globe. The Financial Modelers Corner podcast is brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute. FMI offers the most respected accreditations in financial modeling. I am thrilled and excited to welcome our guest this week to the show. Emily Williams, welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited to have you. So, you know, we like to start each episode before we give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. We like to start off with a fun question. Tell me about the worst financial model you ever saw. I know everybody has a horror story. If you've modeled, you got one. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I do is actually I teach university students. And so I get some pretty brutal ones in that, but they're just starting out. So we'll park those ones. I work with one now and actually as a model, it's not bad, but it's pretty hard on the eyes. I think they've got every single color Excel offers. There is no white space at all in this model. So that's pretty, uh, that's pretty tough. And then I had another one that I got and it had simulations in it and it took me 10 minutes to open. Every time I wanted to open it, it was 10 minutes. So I was like, I don't even want to touch this model. Yeah. Rainbow models where they've used every color in the book can be just hard on the eyes, even if they're a good structured model, you don't want to use them. The worst, though, in a lot of ways, are those ones that take forever to open because it's just it's so hard to work in and to make any change. I once inherited, and I won't call it a model. It was really more of a data storage file. It was an Excel file, and they were using it to generate some results, but not necessarily a financial model. But the file was over a gigabyte. And I still remember the guy going, well, you know, I it opens pretty quick on my 64 gigabyte gaming machine. Like if you need a 64 gig of RAM to open the file, you got bigger problems. Exactly. That's what, that's what he was doing. And the client was sending it to me. It was a review and they couldn't send it to me and we're like, had to open all sorts of sharing locations to try to get one that would accept this file. So what's kind of been the takeaway from seeing some of those models? What do you take away into your practice? So now I know that it's okay to break your models up. You can break them up and have a separate file and then just dump your output as an input to your new model. You can break it up, keep it, uh, keep it streamlined. One or two colors is perfectly okay. You know, you don't need the whole box of crayons in your model. <laughs> I one time tried to model, I don't know if you've ever used Excel, has some default colors in it for outputs and inputs. And they're kind of, an, frankly, I think an ugly orange. And I decided to use them for an entire model. And it hurt my eyes by the time I was done. I'm like, okay, never again am I using their default colors. No. So usually, yeah, usually I just set up the colors in advance so that when I export them to PowerPoint, they're already going to match the template and it saves a lot of time. Yeah, I, I hear you on that one. So tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up where you're at and how you, you got into modeling. I know you come from an engineering and a little bit of a mining background. So love to hear your story. So uh, I'm a mining engineer and uh, I'm living in Toronto now, but started out, uh, graduated from engineering school, then uh, did a master's and went out to work in the, in the industry. And the uh, best way to do that is to go on site. Uh, so went up to a small mining town up north, then I meant to be there for two years. And 20 years later, we finally said, okay, we're ready to come back down south. But it was really a great time working in operations. So really hands-on in the field, seeing how mines really worked. So we started out, you know, the first 
the first few years doing operations and then started doing planning. And mining is just such, uh, so closely tied with, with economics. You run economics all the time. You're always looking up the gold price and uh, all your, your metrics like that. You do a lot of a lot of that. And actually the first mine I worked at engineering was responsible for the budget process. So I started doing that and said, you know what, this I like doing. Started working more and more with the finance groups and uh, became the, uh, you know, sort of the, the economics person for the site. Moved around, uh, moved up the ladder a little bit and said, you know what, this is really what I want to do. So that's now my focus is taking, you know, this mining background and making, making models uh, that do, that, uh, that take advantage of that. So I've left operations. I'm now freelancing. I work for different consulting companies and different clients on feasibility studies, due diligence, things like that. As well, I, uh, teach, I teach mining engineering to first-year university students. So I know it's great you teach and I, you know, I love you telling a little bit of the background and story. I'm curious, is there mostly with the mines you worked with, was there mostly one kind of material they were mining over the years and you kind of cover all the different commodities out there? What do you, is there a specialty within that mining? Kind of what do you typically see? The mines I worked at was gold. So gold mines will typically have gold and we had silver byproducts. You will get some gold and uh, copper mines, for example, but uh, the area of, of Canada we were at is really gold. So that's kind of a specialty and it is quite different than uh, some of the big polymetallic mines. So I'm working on a project and it's it's base metals and there we have nine or 10 different metals that we consider. But uh, my specialty is is gold. That makes sense. And I would imagine when you're dealing with nine or 10 different metals, it probably adds a lot of complexity because there's a lot more economics going into that. It does. It does. And uh, also is the recovery and the smelting contracts are very, very complex because it's not just one metal and it behaves in one way. Uh, it's the combination of all the different metals that does the recovery and does the treatment charges. So makes a lot of sense. The process has to be quite different when you have nine different products and you got to separate them and go through all that process versus when you're dealing with one or two. Exactly. And the other thing too, is that just the, the unit value is different. In gold, you're tend to going to have smaller scale operations because it's a high unit value. You're going to be much more selective when you're in the in base metals. You're going to have more bulk. You're going to have economies of scale, much larger projects in terms of size, not necessarily in terms of value. That makes sense. So as you mentioned, you started in mining operations and you were lucky enough, I guess, to have engineering do the budget and you started to realize you, you liked it. So what was it you liked about the finance side? What was it that really enjoyed and made you decide you to make that switch, to move from, you know, operations to much more of the, the finance and the economics. So in the, uh, I guess in the industry, you've got really sort of the people who, who want to do operations and want to make things happen. And then you've got the planners. So I was always more on that planning side, but you can't just plan your physical extraction in a vacuum. You want to make sure that you're doing the right plan. And the only way you do that is by testing the economics as you go. And so the first plan you always do is always is generally always terrible economics. And you look at it and you're like, yeah, this is, doesn't make any money. You start going, well, what if I increased the production? Or if I did this, I went over here first. And you do all these sort of things and you're just kind of pulling different levers. And you're seeing at the end whether you're not, you make money. I just really enjoyed, you know, doing that, pulling the levers, which things make the most sense? How, what's the best you can do with this hand of cards you've been given, which is the ore body? How do you optimize the resources we have? Exactly. 
the challenge is that it's not a fixed quantity. Your resource, and this is known as the ore reserve problem, it changes depending on the on what you select as a mining method, for example, or as a productivity or as your equipment. So if you decide I'm going to use this size of trucks and you run everything, well, and it doesn't work. You can't just go and change the size of trucks. You probably have to go back and adjust your ore. How much, what's my starting quantity, either higher or lower? And then that sort of changes everything. So all of your parameters, there's no actual starting point. You kind of have to make some guesses. You test them out. Does this make sense? And if it doesn't, you change them. If it does, you keep refining things. People think, or, oh, well, it's whatever, whatever you can measure. Well, it's, it's not actually, it's a variable. It's a fluctuating definition because it's economic definition. It's not like anything that has a certain density that you can measure. If the gold price changes every day, the amount of material you have to work with technically changes every day too. So it's a very, very dynamic process. Sure. And, and, and that makes sense because at certain prices, you're going to do very different behavior than at other prices. Now, obviously, you know, you can't, react on a day-to-day basis of the market. You have to build in some stability, but ideally that's what you'd like to do. You mean you can't swap out your equipment from one day to the next because the price is way different? (laughs) No, you can't. And your workers, if you send them home for the day, they don't really like that either. They kind of expect to be kept on for a certain amount of time. Sure. They expect to be paid. I mean, all makes sense, which kind of leads into our next question. You know, you and I had the opportunity to uh, chat via email and one of the things you really shared as we were, were talking in preparation for the show is just the challenge of building good mining models. You mentioned how many of models lack technical depth when built by finance. When the engineer does the model, they often have the technical, but usually they're not well-designed models. It might be a little poor on the model side. Can you talk about what you're doing to try to bridge that gap? You know, What is it that you're doing to improve that? So one of the things about mining engineers is typically they don't like to start models. So they're always going to take a model that's close enough and work from there. So one of the good things you can do is if you build a really robust model to start with, and you know, it's like, you know that this is going to get recycled in a whole lot of different ways, but at least you're starting off in a good way and, and provide that. So I do, I do that as build models for people. The standards are, are a little bit tricky to follow in mining just because we have so many different parameters, but there are some rules that are applicable. So try to, to follow those. And like right now I'm working with a bunch of junior and intermediate engineers and is really to not just tell them, look, this is, this is how you do it, but explain this is why you do it. This is why I'm spending so much time setting up this part of my model and really, really showing that. And it's, it's usually it's paid off because, uh, you know, I was working on a, on a project last year and the, you know, the, the project manager, you know, two hours before he was presenting to his boss, he said, yeah, he, he asked us if we can change a few things in the model. And he's like, you, you'll never be ready in time, will you? And I said, 15 minutes later, you know, yes, you do have it. Here's the model. I spent so much time up front building it in that structured way. And they're like, yeah, I didn't think we could do that in 15 minutes. And it's like, you can, if you've done it right. So just really showing them the the benefit of doing that. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. And I, I totally agree with you. When you have a well-designed model, when you've thought about it and you have it structured, right? Your inputs, your outputs, your calculations, it's much easier to modify. Sometimes you may still go away and say, hey, you're gonna have to give me some time depending on the complexity of what they're asking. But often- you can do it on the fly, so to speak, within the 15 minutes or sometimes right there, depending on the questions, if it's designed properly. 
it's amazing how much of a difference it makes. Yes. And the same manager, once he found out that we had this nice dynamic model, he's like, oh, so you mean I can ask you all these scenario questions? What if we did this? Right. So I ended up having this great relationship with him. He'd call me up. What would happen if we did this? And it's like this total, totally random idea that's just come to him. And I do that. And it's like, yeah, no, don't do that. That's not going to help. And then he'd come up. What about this one? Yes, that one is. Go talk, you know, let's go talk to the engineering and see if that one works. But that one is makes sense to explore, whereas the other one didn't. So he could do a lot of what ifs. Yeah, I, no, I totally understand, you know, different situation, but I built a model a little over a year ago for a business. And, you know, they came back to me just recently because they switched their accounting system. And so they want all the accounts switched out in the model, you know, kind of updated and they had mentioned, he goes, I absolutely love this model. It helped us make good business decisions and move things forward. And it was just nice to know, okay, that was put together in such a way that it actually made a difference. You know, they're using it a year later because I've definitely built some models where it's like, oh man, please just let me start over. This thing is horrible. And so it's always nice. Like you mentioned, when you get it right, not that it's perfect, but you get it right where it adds value. Yes. And actually some there'd been, uh, there was someone else on the team and she, and she was telling me, oh yeah, I took that model and now I use it to test other things. So I was like, oh, perfect. Yep. And, and speaking of kind of, you know, what if scenario sensitivity analysis, I know that's a huge part of mining, right? You got price fluctuations, uh, variables in the inputs and out, you know, how much you have in the mine, all those type of things. So we talked a little bit about that prior to the show about how difficult it is. And you had mentioned it requires a circular optimization approach, which creates some real challenges. So first, can you tell our audience what you know that circular optimization is and just kind of how you manage that, how you, you know, do it in the, in the mining industry with that challenge? So yeah, so this is the thing. Let's say that you have been told, well, we think we've got, we'll just call it a million units of, of resource just for kicks. And it's got a certain quality. And okay, so you say, well, if I've got a million, then this might be a way to mine it. And you're going to start running some costs. How much would it cost me to build this mine? How much would it cost to run it? And then you come to the end and you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. I can't do that. So you're going to say, okay, I could get a million units at this quality, but what if I was able to accept some lower quality and I got 2 million of this lower quality material. So now I've got some economies of scale. If I've got economies of scale, well, maybe it's going to cost more in terms of CapEx to build it, but not so much to operate it. Does that, does that move the needle on the economics on the end or vice versa? You say, well, let's increase the quality of that. We're going to only take the best part of this deposit instead of getting everything. We're going to go down to half a million, but it's going to be really good stuff. And you're going to build a smaller mine. You're going to operate it for a shorter amount of time. And so maybe that scenario, you run the economics. You're like, oh, you know what? This one is maybe a better starting point. But you've had to kind of guess your starting point. And so often you're going to use benchmarks. You're going to say, well, you know what? There's a mine just down the road and this is the way they do it. Let's start with something like them. And you're going to get some benchmarks. So let's, let's look... Uh, you know, there's databases. What's an average operating cost for this size of operation using this type of equipment? And you can just sort of do some, some back of the envelope calculations and just sort of get an idea of what sort of scale might work. And once you've got a range, then you're going to start doing engineering. So we always do it. There's different studies we do. We call it like a scoping or preliminary economic analysis. And that's going to have relatively low level of engineering completion. You're going to have really high contingency on it. 
but it allows you to run a lot of scenarios fairly quickly, find one. Then you're going to take your best scenario and you're going to go to another level of detail. You're not just going to use benchmarks anymore. You're actually going to go and start costing things, but not everything. And you're going to keep refining it, reducing your contingency, reducing your risk. And eventually you get a scenario that is, you know, economic, reasonably advanced. You can get some confidence in it. So that's sort of the challenge on the model is you've got to be able to accommodate all the different changes, but also the different levels of details. There's maybe certain things you know very precisely because let's say you're, you've already bought this type of truck for your other operations. So you know exactly what this truck costs because you just bought one last year. But there's other things you don't know anything about. So you got to be careful when you start adding things that are known and things that are just estimated or benchmarked. And that makes sense. And I can definitely see that, that iterative process. You know, it's like many projects you start with, you're often benchmarking. You have a lot of unknowns. Okay, you do the high level and say, okay, we think there's enough here. This makes economic sense. So let's go to the next level. Go to the next level. And you're like, okay, I still think it makes sense, but we want to drill down further. But what if we change this? What if we do? And you're, like you said, constantly optimizing and trying to make sure the model adjusts for all those different things. Like, oh, I got six trucks. Do I need 30 people or do I need 35 now? Do I got this? Do I need, you know, this size power or that size power? And how much is that going to cost? And then the other thing you've, you've got to do is that you've got to consider the physical constraints. It's great to say you'd like these six trucks to be operating all the time, but you can't have a truck operating in space, like in space underneath another one, right? There's physical constraints about which block you have to mine before another one. So everything does, doesn't case. So there's that 3D geometry aspect and how you sequence it as well. So that's one of the things that doesn't necessarily come out well in a model is that they're not just numbers on a page or, you know, items on a shelf in a warehouse, right? They've got to go, you got to physically drive your truck over to get it. Sometimes what you'd like the truck to do just physically isn't possible until you do seven other things. Yeah, the dependencies, those physical constraints are not always easy to model. There's, there's models, which you try to represent reality, and then there's reality. And you know, some things are easy to represent in a model and some are really hard. Exactly. And so we always have to have like our specialized mining software to do that 3D. You'd never be able to do it in Excel. We have to, you know, get a data dump from that as to, okay, this is what we're actually going to do each year and then do the test. You got to integrate with that sort of 3D planning. Makes sense. I, I could definitely see where you'd want some optimization software to do those calculations and that math and then take those inputs take that output and make it an input in your model. Exactly. Now that we've got this plan, what does that mean in terms of people and of consumables and energy and things like that? Got it. Kind of stepping back a little bit, we've talked a lot about sensitivity, obviously all the modeling you've done, but I'm curious, how has starting on the operation side of mining made you a better modeler? How has that helped you in your career? It goes back to knowing which questions are going to want to be answered. It's so easy, like when you, people don't know modeling, you just start, okay, well, this is the data I have. Let's take that and then I'll do some calculations on it. And eventually you work through a, a few lines of, of Excel and you come up and you plot a graph on it, right? And you're like, here's my, here's my model. That's backwards. So what I like to do is, okay, this is what the manager or the, you know, the client is going to want to know. These are the things they're going to want to know. Once I present these results... Let's say I've got a nice production plan and I've got a cash flow per year and a project NPV. Well, they're going to want to, I can right away think about some of the questions they're going to ask me. Notably, how do we do better? 
How do I reduce risk? How do we do better? So we've got to be able to build the model from those results and work backwards and say, these are the questions they're going to want to know. What happens if we change the size of the fleet? What happens if we lower the cutoff grade, which is the quality of the material? What happens if we increase the quality, for example? Which of, how do those things work? So really this operations background helps, uh, helps understand which levers you can actually pull, which ones are numbers on a page, but you can't pull or are very difficult to pull. Because sometimes, let's say we look at when you do present project results, you know, we always got these nice spider graphs on sensitivities and you say, okay, CapEx goes up 10% or goes down 10%. What does it do to the NPV? Present these types of things. Well, if you're looking at something like recovery, processing recovery, it's not really a symmetrical function. It's very expensive to get better recovery. It's very easy to get lower recovery. You don't have to do much to, to mess that up. <laughs> if you've just got somebody who said plus 5% on the recovery, well, that's not necessarily going to happen. Whereas minus 10% on the recovery maybe is, is going to happen. Mining projects are, you know, huge capital projects, right? They take, they take years to build, you know, they can't build much for under a billion dollars anymore. So if you start looking at the capital estimate on your project, the chances of you going under budget versus completely blowing your budget are not the same at all. So you have to understand that so that when you're presenting your model, you can, you can reflect these types of actual risks and where the problems are and flag those in the model and be able to test those. Yeah. And, th and that's been my experience as well as, you know, most of my career is FP&A and the better I learned the business and the economics, the much easier it made it to make sure those assumptions made sense, to be able to validate the model and know where to pull the levers versus times when you just build a model and you really knew nothing about the business. Okay. Just tell me what you want it to be because you're just, you know, putting it, whatever they put in and like, oh yeah, we can adjust this. And they're like, no, no, you can't. And here's why, or that number isn't realistic. And so being able to have that sense check and understanding the economics, whatever industry you're in, I think is just invaluable when it comes to building models, because it allows you to really be part of the discussion and often the solution instead of just, hey, I built the model, tell me what changes you want me to make. And you could recommend, you know what, this is, this is maybe an area in which you're, you're not optimum right now. What do you think about digging into this one? Yeah. And then, you know, there's also a lot of simplifying assumptions, you know, that everything scales linearly. Well, things don't, you know, you've got step changes, you've got economies of scale, you've got all these things and understanding what are your constraints. If you, you add so many workers, well, after a while, you've got to add some supervisors to go with them. And then you've got to add more locker rooms for them. And you've got to add all these other things to go with your extra workers. You can't just keep saying, I'm going to add an extra worker and an extra one. And think that's the only cost you have. At some point, it's like, all right, we need a whole new facility or at least an expansion to the facility. In today's business world, financial modeling skills are more important than ever. With Financial Modeling Institute's Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation Program, you can become recognized as an expert in the field by validating your financial modeling skills. Join the Financial Modeling Institute's community of top financial modelers gain access to extensive learning resources, and attain the prestigious Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation. Visit www.fminstitute.com backslash podcast and use code podcast to save 15% when you register.
So, you know, I imagine making the transition to modeling, there's a lot you did to become better at modeling and time you invested. So maybe can you talk about some of the key things you did that really helped you become a better modeler as you got into it and started to realize, okay, you know, I enjoy this. I like budgeting. I like planning, but this isn't something I've you know naturally learned about in school. So talk about that adjustment, maybe some of the things you did to become better at modeling. The first time I realized that there was actually a way to do it and actually the structure of modeling was was a real thing as opposed to let's just stick things in our in our Excel spreadsheet. So we'd gone to an industry conference and they had a short course and it was one of the uh, it was one of the FMI approved training uh, partners and he, they were running a short course on mining financial modeling and I just went in and I absolutely loved it. I was like, wow, this is really really cool. So then after a while, I said, you know what? They just did sort of the one day version, but this is actually a two or three day course. So I went back and I did the whole, the whole course. I said, and I really took a lot away from that and really made me think, you know what? I can do a lot better in my models just with this basic intro. And, you know, we didn't go into all the fancy Excel, but just the structure and things. So I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I can do a lot of things here. And then after when I did a couple more courses with them. And then they said, oh yeah, we're, um, you know, you can do the FMI exam. Hey, I should do that. You know, why not? Coming from mining, people say, oh, I can do models. And they're like, yeah, right. You know, you're an engineer. We'll let finance do that. <laughs> I said, well, maybe if I had a, a, a certificate, they would believe me that I actually do understand some of these finance concepts. So I said, okay, so I'll do the, I'll do the, the level one exam. So I did that. And I did, you know, all the training and the practicing and I passed that. And I said, great, let's go do the next one. The first one was pretty straightforward, but the level two was really not in my wheelhouse at all and was, was really tricky. Not my specialty. So I had to work really hard on that one. Preparing for that exam is how I got involved in doing the FMWC competitions. At that point, they were just still the regular finance ones. But I did that as a way to prepare for my exam. So that after I passed the exam... I said, okay, that's great, but uh, I'll keep going on on these uh, competitions. They're kind of fun, but I'd like to be better. So I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep practicing. And you start watching the YouTube videos and uh, all this stuff and taking additional classes on it. And then you start getting, okay, you know, I'm not so bad at this. And then they brought in the the Excel, uh, the battles. I was like, oh, okay, got to start again. (laughs) Start learning that because it's really a different type of... uh, of exercise, but interesting in a, in a different way. But the speed is definitely a challenge that you need to do for that. So that's, uh, I guess, sort of how I, I really just started is just step by step. Yeah, I can push that a little more. I could do better on this. One thing I really hear kind of weave throughout all of that is you spent a lot of time practicing, whether it was for the test, whether it was for a competition, whether it was for your own learning. And I love how you just said you have to. Why, why is that so important? I think sometimes people think you can just learn the concepts and then you'll be able to build it when, it when the time comes. Why is that practice so critical? It isn't. Because in, in my day job, you just keep using the same formulas, like the same things over and over again. You do a better, you find a better way to do it and then you just keep doing the same thing. So you've got to push yourself to go, you know what, this part of my model, I wonder if there's a better way to do it. And you go and you look up and you find out, you know, it was a couple of years ago, it's like, you know, it was using index match. And then all of a sudden people, what's this, all this? People keep talking about X lookup. Wonder what that is. And then you go in and you're like, oh yeah, this could help. Let me try that. But if you don't push yourself to do it, you'll just keep the same functions over and over again in your model and they won't get better. 
So very true. You know, I do uh, Excel training and it's amazing how many people have never heard of Power Query or their eyes light up when I show them, oh, you can do unique to remove duplicates. And they're just like, what? You know, I mean, I don't have to copy and paste and go up to the button and hit remove duplicates or manually do it or however they were doing it before. And so, yeah, if you're not challenging yourself, because Excel changes at such a rapid pace nowadays, you're going to be missing out. You're going to be doing things probably a longer way or not as efficient as they can be, like not using Power Query or not learning about dynamic arrays. Say you have to use all of them right away, but you really need to keep yourself current and just know what's out there. Because even if you don't use them, as I heard someone say, someone else is going to give you a model that's used them and you need to be able to understand it. Exactly. So for the moment, like I don't, I don't need to use dynamic arrays in my, in my day job. I don't think they'd be helpful uh, because I don't think it would be very transparent necessarily uh, for the client and the type of models I do, but it's still really good to know that these are out there. And if I need them, I I can go and dig into that when I need to. You know, switching gears here a little bit, you mentioned how you got into financial modeling, World Cup and Excel, esports, doing some of those competitions. Recently, you got to be on the elimination battle on Excel. What was it like? Tell us a little bit about that experience. It was, uh, it was actually pretty scary. I did not feel prepared at all. was working with uh, Leanna Garish because she'd been preparing for a battle before. So I said, okay, I'll help her out as part of the uh, Women in Financial Modeling group. So we, a few of us were saying, we'll help you prepare for this. I just remember thinking at that point, I'm so glad this is not me. I'm not, I'm not ready for this. So, well, a couple, you know, a couple of months later, they call me and say, hey, do you want to do this? I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm not ready. But uh, I said, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm glad I did it. Uh, so for those of you who've watched it, uh, I did not, uh, I did not do well, was, was first out, but it's really important. I think in order to get the skilled, the battles to, to face that kind of pressure, because it's completely different from doing them at home. Just got to the, got to the battle. Okay. Question one. Okay. I think I can do question one. And then not even prepared. Didn't even remember to copy my answers over to the other, you know, very basic thing. Put your answers in this sheet. Couldn't remember to do that looked at question two, total blank. So even though I thought, you know, I'd prepared and I'd done all the practice cases I could, you can't train for that sort of, that sort of pressure and especially the, the time pressure. So I'm glad I did it. And now I kind of know uh, a bit more on how to prepare for that. And hopefully I'll get another chance sometime and put myself a little bit better. Well, great. I'm glad you had fun. And I have an episode coming out soon talking about my experience and it was similar to yours. So I can definitely relate to it. And the pressure and the challenges of mine wasn't elimination. Mine wasn't on ESPN, but it was streamed. And, you know, there were four contestants and I came in fourth. So I can at least commiserate with you there. I get it. (laughs) Exactly. And as soon as you're eliminated, you're like, oh yeah, that's how I needed to do this question. Yeah. I started working on it the rest of the day going, why did I not even think about this or that? So we're nearing the end of our time and we have this next section. We call it rapid fire questions. You get no more than 10 to 15 seconds to answer each question. You can't tell me it depends because every single one of these, you could say it depends. We want you to pick a side. I get, you know, that it may not be 100% that way, but you get to take a position. And then at the end, we'll give you the opportunity to elaborate on one, maybe two that you feel really strongly about. So I'm going to go ahead and read each of these and just ask your view. So when building models, circular or no circular references? Never. It always means I've made a mistake. VBA or no VBA? Only if absolutely necessary, but almost never. We'll take that as a no for the most part. Horizontal or vertical? Horizontal. 
All right. I, I'm a horizontal person, so I get that one. Excel, dynamic arrays in your model, yes or no? No, but maybe if I learn them, yes. <laughs> that works. External workbook links, yes or no? No. <laughs> That's the typical answer we get for that one. Uh, named ranges versus no named ranges? Uh, no, but I can talk about that one after. All right. We'll talk a little bit more about that one. Do you follow a formal standards like, you know, smart or fast or some of the others when building your model? No, I don't find they're very uh, well adapted to mining, but I try to follow some of the general principles. That's fair. And the next question, this is a fun one we added recently. Will Excel ever die? Yes or no? I would say yes, but it's going to take a while. That's where I'm at. When it will happen, I don't know. But I think eventually, will AI build the models for us in the future? Build? Yes. Design, not so much. Fair enough. And then the last one is, what is your lookup function of choice? And I'm going to give you four options. I realize there can be four, more. VLOOKUP, XLOOKUP, INDEX MATCH, or CHOOSE? I'm a recent convert to XLOOKUP. Okay. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an XLOOKUP fan. I asked that question to Dim early, and he goes, I would question if there's only four. I'm like, yes, I know, but I'm not going to list all of them. <laughs> you know? I still use index match for some cases, but uh, X look up uh, a lot of the time. All right. You have a minute here to elaborate. I think you said you were going to elaborate on named ranges, right? Yeah. So I don't actually use them for ranges. I use them for certain parameters uh, where I find it really helps uh, in clarity of the model. So I'll use them for things like density, which I know, you know, one cell, that's where I'll use it. But I'm not going to say, you know, production inputs and re refer to that because I really don't like the structured tables and I try to avoid those except if I'm going into Power Query. So I'll use them a lot like conversion factor grams to ounces. I'll label that because I find that really helps when you've got non-mining people follow your conversion. So I find that's the, that's the one place where it really helps. I agree with you. That's an area I've definitely used them a lot in a model. I also like using them sometimes for other things, but they can be very helpful single cell when you just want to name it. So all the formulas are referencing that cell, but you don't want to do table or tabled structure for whatever reason. I definitely use tables a lot, but that's because I'm a huge Power Query user and you, you have to use tables. Yes. I use them on my, uh, like on my data inputs when I'm getting the inputs from the, the production dump that I will get, use Power Query there and then I will transform the data, get it set up. And then, but then after that, I try to avoid it. I love tables for dealing with data and the analysis. But yeah, when you get into a model, there are areas where it can, it can be hard sometimes. So now we're heading into the, the last section here. We have two questions left. So the first one is you, if you could offer one piece of advice to our audience to be a better financial modeler, what advice would you give them? You know, kind of touched on this before, but start at the end. What questions do you need to answer? How are you going to sort of justify the story that your model is telling you? How is it going to say, okay, you know, the production's going up in this year and uh, then it's going to decline from here. Can you back that up? Do you understand what that input is? So first of all, this is, this is what the output looks like. Can you justify it? Can you answer questions about it? Then work backwards from that, figure out how to build it and understand that because that output is always what you're going to want. But like I said, you know, in, in our case, the, the input, it changes levels. As you go through the different processes, that output is fixed. The story that you want to be able to tell with your model, the questions that you need to answer or, or explain, um, those are fixed. So I would always say start with that. So if our audience wants to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? 
I'm not a big poster on LinkedIn, but I do I do check messages and I do I do follow a lot of the the threads. So you can get in touch with me there, and there's a link to my website. You can reach out to the contact information. Great. So we'll put your website, we'll put LinkedIn in the show notes. And I just want to conclude by saying thank you so much for joining us, Emily. I really enjoyed talking. It was fun to learn a little bit about the mining industry and just see the way you went from engineering and operations to modeling and the passion you have for it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. What a fun episode that was with Emily Williams. I'm really excited we had her on the show. And I have to thank Danielle Stein Fairhurst for mentioning in her financial modeling for women's group that they could be on the show. And Emily reached out and said, I'd love to be on the show. What a great background she has. I want to talk a little bit about a couple things from that episode. First is just her non-traditional background, right? She talks about how she worked in a mine for 20 years and lived in a small mining town. And she came up on finance, basically, and modeling by chance, right? Someone said, hey, you need to work on the budget. Okay, what's that? And she found she liked the operational planning. And then what I love is she took the time to invest in herself. She didn't just do what many people do and, hey, I'll just make it up and figure it out in Excel. She took courses. She talks about how she took courses to learn how to model. She talks about how she invested in Financial Modeling World Cup to improve her Excel skills, to experience new things, and how she did Excel esports. And so what I love is she just showed her passion and willingness to learn, which really leads to the number two thing I'd like to mention. First, I love her non-traditional background, but two is the importance of practice. She talked about how she invested time, how she learned new Excel formulas, learned about dynamic arrays, learned about different things, and how she'll continue to learn. And that's so important. If you want to be good at modeling or anything in life, you have to practice. And I love the advice Chris Riley gave. If you want somewhere to start when it comes to modeling, start by modeling your life, model your own budget, your inflows and outflows. And then the last thing I really want to emphasize from that episode is just how different each industry is. As you can see, she talked about how the mining industry can be very different from other industries and the complexity and how different assumptions lead you down a certain way. And you can't just say, oh, all of a sudden I'm going to do this. And you have constraints and how you have to optimize things and use additional software. And so, you know, every industry has its nuances. Yes, we have general guides for modeling and things we'd like to do. But also sometimes things have to be different in the real world. And that's important to understand. And so those are the things I just like to talk a little bit about from that episode. And then the next thing I'd like to talk about is the road to Vegas. As many of you know, I've had David Brown, Dim Early, Emily Williams on the show. Those are all people who have competed in the Financial Modeling World Cup. And so how great was that to hear each of them and to learn from each of them? If you want to join me in Vegas, please, by all means, come. December 7th through 9th will be the World Championship. And they just selected all the finalists. They just completed the last round. And so they have everybody who will be competing in Vegas. And if you'd like to get a discount to attend that event, please use my code FPNAGUY10 to save 10% for the event. If you have any questions, you can always reach out to me and email me at pbarnhurst at the fpnaguy.com. But I'd love to have you join me. And then as a reminder, if you ever have any questions or you want to submit a question, you can do that to my email as well. You can send me a question about a show, question you have about finance, and we'll look to answer it in a future episode. And then as a reminder, you can earn CPE credit for this podcast by going to earmarkcpe.com 
downloading the app and answering a few questions. And then last but not least, I have a huge favor to ask. If you enjoy listening to Financial Modeler's Corner, then please take the time to write a review to give us a ranking on your podcast platform, whether that be Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us grow the show. That helps us to continue to provide great content for each of you and for each episode. Thank you again for joining me. Financial Modeler's Corner was brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute. Visit FMI at www.fminstitute.com backslash podcast and use code podcast to save 15% when you enroll in one of their accreditations today.